Alrighty. You guys ready to get into Colossians? We are getting back into chapter 2. Last time we covered uh, verses 6 and 7. We are going to cover verses 8 through 10 in chapter 2 this morning. And uh, there's a little extra here, so I might talk a little, a little fast, faster than normal. But why don't you turn there, Colossians chapter 2. If you're using a blue Bible we provide, it is on page 984. And just as a heads up, our text is verses 8 through 10. We are primarily going to spend time on verse 8. So if you're maybe glance at the clock later on and you realize we're still on the first verse, it's okay. We're not going to spend as much time on verses 9 and 10. And there's a reason for that. So, as I said last time, we, we looked at verses 6 and 7, which mark not only the turning points in Paul's letter, but these verses 6 and 7, verses 6 and 7, mark the focal point of this letter. And we must not forget that. Those verses contain not just Paul's first command to his readers, but his chief command to them. And it was this, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so keep walking in him, remaining rooted and being built up in him, and so being established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That's the chief command in this letter. It's the climax, and it's the point that Paul had been building up to, in the first part of his letter, and the point from which the rest of his letter flows, verses 6 and 7. That command sums up the Christian life. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so keep walking in him, remaining rooted in him and being built up in him. That sums up the Christian life. It sums up what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and to live in a manner pleasing to the Lord. And that was Paul's prayer for the Colossians, and so would be his prayer for us as well. Paul follows up this command, this central command, with another command in verse 8, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. And the command in verse 8, he gives this to warn his readers against that which would jeopardize their ability to keep walking in Christ in the way that they had received him. It would jeopardize... He was warning them against what would jeopardize their ability to keep walking through faith in Christ as the Lord, the creator and ruler of all things. And then in verses 9 and 10, Paul gives the reason for this command. So that's what we have, the command in verse 8, verses 9 and 10, the reason for this command, this warning. So now let's read these three verses. Paul wrote this to the Colossians, see to it. That no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So here we see Paul begin to directly address the matter that was of greatest concern for the Colossian church. And what was that? It was the influence of a particular strain of false teaching in their region. And this false teaching was causing confusion and leading even some to think that they needed to supplement their faith in Christ with rituals and regulations in order to be more spiritually empowered and in order to grow in godliness. They needed to, to supplement their, their faith with, with rituals and regulations. That's what this false teaching was pushing. And Paul spends the rest of chapter 2 addressing this particular issues. And what he does is he dismantles the false teacher's counterfeit version of Christianity by reminding the Colossians of their salvation and new life in Christ. So he reminds them of this reality. And he basically makes the point that the false teachers don't know what they're talking about. 
and that what they are advocating is of no real benefit to anyone who is in Christ. Now let's take a closer look at the cautionary command in verse 8. What does he say? The primary command, see to it, that what? That no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. The picture that Paul paints here is, uh, for the Colossians is that of someone capturing them and carrying them off into a form of spiritual slavery. So the warning is against not people who would take something from you, but would take you, carry you off into bondage. What the Colossians were in danger of was being persuaded by smooth-talking false teachers to embrace unbiblical beliefs, beliefs that would be spiritually oppressive to them, and that would suppress the spiritual freedom and growth that they had experienced and were meant to experience in Christ. And when you receive Christ, when you believe the gospel, when you receive him, you are liberated from bondage to sin. You are spiritually set free. And Christ gives salvation so that you might be free. And there is a danger in this false teaching that these Christians would be persuaded to go back to something that would actually be oppressive to them and suppress that very freedom that Christ had called them to experience. And this is why Paul warns them to watch out and to be careful, because error often masquerades as Christian truth, and it can be presented in a very reasonable and convincing manner so that one would be persuaded to embrace it. You know, false teaching isn't some guys coming up. It wouldn't be really persuasive. They said, uh, you, sh- you should reject Christ and-, and embrace this other, our religion. We made one up. You know, it's, uh, it's fake. Uh, it's not real. But, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't work that way. They come presenting uh, the-, the false teachers that present a danger, the ones who claim to be Christian, who claim to present Christian teaching. And maybe some things they say is true are true, but then they introduce their teaching that distorts the faith. So it masquerades as Christian truth, and error can be presented in a very reasonable and convincing manner, and there's a susceptibility to being persuaded. We're not immune to being persuaded with fine-sounding arguments to start believing unbiblical things. And remember what Paul said at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 2. He said, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, persuasive speech, fine-sounding arguments, seemingly truthful assertions. He says, I'm warning you because I don't want anyone to delude you with persuasive arguments, to lead you into error. And here in verse 8, we see more specifically the means by which these false teachers were seeking to win disciples. What did they use? What does he say? See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. That's right. Philosophy. What is philosophy? Sounds like a philosophical question. One dictionary defines it this way. There are several uh, ways of defining it, but I felt like this is a, a good way to capture it. Philosophy is the study of the ultimate nature of existence, reality, knowledge, and goodness as discoverable by human reasoning. It's a good definition. It's the the, the pursuit of these things by reason, by man's reason, these ultimate truths, the answers to these ultimate questions. In other words, philosophy is man's attempt to understand and explain the world through his own reasoning. Man's attempt to explain everything through his own reasoning, his own natural, rational mind. It's man's attempt to grasp truth and the meaning of life. In other words, the the purpose of our existence and how we should live as a result. Philosophers were considered the great thinkers of their day, and they still are. 
There are philosophers, a long line of philosophers throughout history. They were considered the great thinkers of their day, and many people joined themselves to these philosophers' system of thought and way of life. Various schools of philosophy developed in the Greco-Roman world in which the events of the New Testament are situated. So we have ancient Greece, and some philosophers' names that might sound familiar, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, these great names, and maybe in a history class you might remember coming across these figures and learning about them. But they were very influential, and people joined them, attached, them to them, uh, attached themselves to these people's system of belief, systems of philosophy, that they might live by these systems. And in Acts 17, 18, we read that when Paul was in Athens, very sophisticated city, when he was in Athens, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed with him about the message he was preaching. There are different schools of philosophy, Epicureans, Stoics. They had different answers to the big questions of life and different lifestyles that one was to live by according to the answers that they came up with. And so they interacted with Paul. We see, we see philosophers there. And aside from that verse, the only place the word philosophy appears in the New Testament is right here in Colossians 2.8. Now, what Paul was addressing in Colossians was not mere secular or pagan philosophy. Right? So I mentioned Plato, right? He wasn't Christian. He was just secular, ancient Greek philosopher, pagan Greek philosophy. And what Paul's addressing in Colossians is not just this secular philosophy. The false teachers were not trying to use philosophy to persuade the Colossians to renounce Christianity. They weren't saying, you know, presenting them with philosophical arguments to persuade them to reject Christianity. Rather, these false teachers were pushing a form of false Christianity that had secular philosophy and even some ceremonial aspects of Judaism blended in with it, as we'll see later in the letter. And that's why Paul said philosophy and empty deceit. It wasn't just philosophy they were pushing. It was a form of Christianity that adopted philosophy and other kind of ceremonialism from other religions. It's a, a false Christianity. So he says it's, it's philosophy and other forms of empty deceit that they're pushing, trying to sell you on. It was, philosophy was part of the overall package. However, philosophy was what Paul deemed to be the most dangerous aspect of this false teaching. I mean, there are other things they're teaching that are weird, bizarre, just wrong, and one of these things is their philosophy, and he considers that the most dangerous aspect of the false teaching. That's the first thing that he warns them about. And that's why he placed specific emphasis on this warning right here. See to it, no one takes you captive, specifically by philosophy, and yes, other empty deception. Paul knew the, the real temptation of the, the false teacher's use of philosophy, the real temptation that that presented. I mean, philosophy was sophisticated and esteemed and influential in the, the culture, and it appealed to man's pride because it, it elevated man's own reasoning to a place of authority on matters concerning the nature and meaning of life. So there's a, a subtle appeal to the pride of man through philosophy. So Paul considers this a real threat. And that's why he warned, watch out lest someone takes you captive with it. He exposed it for what it truly is by coupling it with that phrase, empty deceit. Empty deceit. Any system of worldly philosophy is as well thought out and as eloquently articulated and influential as it may be, any system of worldly philosophy is nothing more than sophisticated error. Sophisticated error. Very fine-sounding error. Remember, it's, it's man attempting to understand and explain the ultimate truth and meaning by his own reasoning. So all philosophy falls in that category, and thus all philosophy is one form, one shape or another of sophisticated error. It's empty deception because it claims to be absolute truth. 
though it is not. And it's false knowledge. And therefore, it has no real intellectual, moral, or spiritual value. So if someone presents you with something that really is false knowledge, what, what benefit is it to you? What value could that possibly bring to your life? Nothing really intellectually, since it's false knowledge. Nothing morally, nothing spiritually. Absolute truth is found in what God has revealed in his word. You don't find it anywhere else. You don't find it from philosophers. You don't find it from, from man's speculation, his ideas, his reflections about the meaning of life. You find it from the objective revelation of God that he's given to us in his word. And let's just look at a passage where we get God's assessment of the wisdom of man. It doesn't mention philosophy, but it talks about the wisdom of man. Now, man's made in the image of God. Man has the ability to reason, right? So man is elevated above all the other creatures. He's made in the image of God. So he has these God-like qualities. He has a will. He has a, a rational mind. And yet, because of sin, that mind is polluted. It is corrupted. It is incapable of truly grasping absolute truth because sin has separated him from the source of absolute truth, which is God. So here's God's assessment of the wisdom of men. Because you might think, well, not all philosophy, right? I mean, some stuff I thought had really good ideas. It seemed accurate. Well, let's see what the Lord has to say about that. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 25. This is a good passage to bookmark in your mind for this subject. Where, and this is another letter of Paul, the Apostle Paul. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The gospel, Christ crucified. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Men don't get to God through wisdom, through their own rational mind, through their own thinking, through Philosophy. They can't answer the great questions in life. So the Colossians had heard and understood and believed what Paul said is the, the word of the truth, the word of the truth, the gospel. They had heard and understood and believed it. And this was in accordance with the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. And its life-changing power was undeniable as evidenced by their love for one another, Paul said earlier in this letter. This is the message they received, the message that is from the wisdom of God, that is the wisdom of God, concerning Christ. So because they received this, they experienced new life, a transformed life, the new birth, and the power of the Spirit in their lives. They received God's message, God's wisdom in the gospel. So... What place does philosophy have for them? What benefit could it possibly have for them? It's of no real benefit. In fact, it's a hindrance to those who allow it to start shaping their thinking as Christians rather than the scriptures. So remember, as a follower of Christ, your thinking should be shaped by the scriptures. This is the truth. Not, I receive salvation, I believe the gospel, this wonderful news of forgiveness of sins, and then now let me take in the ideas of unregenerate men who seem to be really smart, so maybe I should listen to them. That's going to shape your thinking, but that's going to be a hindrance to your growth. That wisdom of men is foolishness to God. It will neither lead sinners to know Christ, nor will it lead saints to grow in Christ. It doesn't get you to God. It does not cause you to grow spiritually. So Paul warns the Colossians to watch out so that they're not led astray by the philosophy and empty deception of the false teachers in their area. And then he goes on to characterize 
the foundation of this false teaching. And it shows why it is unchristian. Although it was being presented to them as Christian teaching with persuasive arguments. Remember, they're saying this is Christianity. This is sophisticated. This is, this is more spiritual Christianity. And he's saying, let me tell you why it's, it's unchristian Christianity. It's false Christianity. Here's its foundation. Paul lists the main characteristics of this empty and deceptive philosophy that made it unchristian. In the second half of verse 8, it is, he said, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and last, but certainly most important, is not according to Christ. What they are teaching is not according to Christ, not according to the teaching of Christ, not according to the word of Christ. And that last phrase is the primary point. What the false teachers taught, it was not based upon the teaching of Christ. Instead, it was based upon the tradition of men, he said. So not Christ. It's based upon the tradition of men. And the Colossians, when we hear the word tradition, again, we need to understand it's a neutral term. In and of itself, it's not wrong or evil. The Colossians had received a tradition. What did they receive? They received the tradition of Christ, God the Son, the Word become flesh, who is the fulfillment of the law. They received the faith as taught by Christ through his apostles. And so have we, if we're truly Christians. We've received Christ's tradition. And we have this faith, this tradition, written down and bound up for us, in the New Testament, which essentially, when we look at the New Testament, this is the capstone, uh, the capstone of the revelation of God and the completion of what he had revealed beforehand in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the word of God, profitable for us, and the New Testament is the final capstone to God's written revelation to us. The false teachers were pushing a tradition, though, that contradicted the teaching of Christ and his apostles, because it came from men and not from scriptures, not from the scriptures. They may have used scripture, right? I mean, if they're persuasive, certainly they're claiming to be Christians, certainly they would have used scripture. Uh, They may have used scripture. They may have claimed that their teaching was based upon scripture. Think of false teaching that you are familiar with today or that you're aware of today. They use the Bible, don't they? They might quote some verses. Or they might insist that it is Christian. It is biblical. But their version or their interpretation of Scripture would have been a selective and twisted reading and interpretation rather than a straightforward, plain reading and consistent literal interpretation that, that harmonized with the rest of God's revelation. False teachers love to cherry-pick verses out to create some kind of form of Christianity that completely contradicts the entire word of God. One very clear example, when we're thinking of tradition, the tradition of men being a foundation for false teaching, a very clear example that we have today of how man-made traditions can produce a completely unchristian form of Christianity is the Roman Catholic Church. Maybe some of you were a part of the Roman Catholic Church, grew up in that, and have come out of that by the grace of God. But much of what Roman Catholicism teaches not only contradicts the plain teaching of Scripture, uh, but it can't be found in or substantiated by Scripture at all. You won't even find much of the teaching in Scripture, um, such as the church's view of salvation, the Roman Catholic Church's sacramental system, its doctrines on Mary. You will not find that anywhere in Scripture. You won't even find that, historically speaking, their beliefs on Mary. That came later in history. But they claim that it was the belief that went all the way back to the time of the apostles. So that's, they have all this unchristian, unbiblical teaching that's authoritative to them because they place tradition, and I'm talking about the institutional church, the leadership, the institutional Roman Catholic Church, it places tradition on the same level of authority as Scripture. It is not Scripture alone is the highest authority. It is Scripture plus tradition. That is the highest authority. They're equal. So that's how you can come up with 
the sacramental system, doctrines of Mary, all these things that you will not find in Scripture or flat out contradict the teaching of Scripture. And with centuries of tradition layered into this system, uh, true Roman Catholics, true Roman Catholics, practicing Roman Catholics, are blinded to the plain teaching of Scripture and thus to the true Christian faith. They could stare right at it. The very verses that we look and say, this contradicts the Scriptures, but they will have been taught by their tradition to read it a certain way to affirm the tradition. Blinded to the true Christian faith. So that's the danger of the tradition of men. That's what it can do. It can corrupt the true faith. And this was the case with the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day. Remember the Pharisees? Very religious guys. Very devoted spiritual men. Religious men. But their traditions had blinded them to the truth and plain teaching of Scripture as Christ exposed them time and time again. We read this, this confrontation, Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees. It says this, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Their concern is what? The authority of tradition, authority of the elders. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? He just got straight to the point. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He said they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus said to them, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You leave the commandment of God for the sake of this tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And he gives an example here. He says, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. That's the law, the law of God for Israel. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, it's, it's given to God, it's a gift to God. I've kind of promised in advance I'm going to give all my belongings to God. So whatever, sorry, Mom and Dad, whatever I would have given to you, it's, it's devoted to God now. So I'm freed of that obligation of honoring you, as God called me to. He says, if you, if, if you, or you say, if a man tells his father or his mother whatever you have gained, would have gained from me as Korban, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And one commentator said this on this issue of the tradition of men. He said, just because people have believed something and handed it down through the years does not make it true. Right? I mean, clear example of that's evolution. Right? The universe just kind of exploded into existence from nothingness, caused itself, and we all just kind of evolved from the slime into complex organisms and all that stuff, right? But hey, what do you see? It's it's asserted. Ah, it's just it's truth. People don't even think about it anymore. They've just accepted because the generations have been taught up to this point. So just because people have believed something and handed it down through the years doesn't make it true. Tradition usually serves merely to perpetuate error, does it not? I mean, the longer it's been handed down, the less you question it. We've always done things this way. We've always believed this. In many cases, tradition is nothing more than ignorance and falsehood handed down from generation to generation. So Paul says to the Colossians, don't let anyone captivate you with this philosophical teaching. It's based upon the tradition of men rather than Christ. It contains no divine truth. And it carries no spiritual authority whatsoever. It is a spiritual nothing burger. That's what it is. That's what he's telling them, right? It, it's, it sources men in his rational, natural mind 
well, great. Well, we know it's not absolute truth. It's not authoritative. It can't speak to spiritual things because he's ignorant of those things. Nothing. It's empty. And then Paul then adds that this teaching is according to the elemental spirits of the world. Whatever that means, right? This is what we've got to figure out. We understand. There's much debate about the exact meaning of this phrase. The Greek word that's translated here in the ESV as elemental spirits is actually a general term used to refer to the basic components of something. It's just a general term. Basic components of something. The something, what that is, that's the question. What is that? Basic components of something, it could be the ranks, it could refer to the ranks of an army, the lines of a poem, the letters of the alphabet, the elements of the universe, the rudiments or rudimentary teachings of a subject or religion, like the rudiments of grammar or the the elementary teachings of a particular religion. So it can refer to these things. It can be used in this way. It means basic components of something. And when it comes to the use of this term in this verse, there are essentially two different interpretations, and thus translations, and we see that in in the translations we're using. One interpretation is that Paul is referring to spirits. That is, to the spiritual forces or angelic powers whom many people associated with the physical elements of the natural world and believed were influencing the course of the world. Spiritual forces at work, and they associated them with the elements of the universe. And if that's the case, then hence the translation. Elements, elemental spirits, as it is in the ESV. And since Paul has elsewhere referred to the fact that there is demonic influence behind false teaching in the scriptures. He points to that. False teaching, behind it, it's demonic. There's demonic influence. The logic here would be that he is exposing the dark influence of this false teaching in Colossae by speaking of, saying it's according to elemental spirits. That would be the logic there. Or it could be that Paul was saying this to point to the fact that This particular form of false teaching in and around Colossae was misconstruing and overemphasizing the place and importance of angels in man's devotional life before God. And as we read on, we'll see that some of the things we're teaching, uh, it relates to the worship of angels. So there's something there about their emphasis on our interaction with angels. So he could be just referring to that. And one could point to the context of Paul's letter and say that his repeated allusions to the angelic realm, which we've seen already, powers of darkness or the power of darkness, he referred to rulers and dominions and authorities, spiritual powers. And so you could see his repeated use or reference to spiritual powers, uh, that being the context, and maybe that's what he's referring to here. And so this favors the interpretation of the translation of the Greek word as elemental spirits. That's what we have in the SV. There's another Bible, the New English Translation, translates it as elemental spirits as well. Or the NIV, which says elemental spiritual forces. They, like, really went for it. Elemental spiritual forces. So that's why it's translated that way. That's why it's understood that way. So there's reason for it. But... While granting that this false teaching was demonic, absolutely, all false teaching is. And while granting that this false teaching contains some wrong-headed understanding of the role of angels in man's devotional life before God, which would explain Paul's specific emphasis on Christ's supremacy and victory over fallen angels in this letter, we grant those things. Still, I wouldn't say that that's the correct way to translate the Greek term at Uh, to uh, translate it as elemental spirits. I would go with the other interpretation. I said there's two main ones. Here's the other one. It understands Paul's use of basic components, basic elements. Uh, It would understand his use of this word to mean elementary principles, rudimentary teachings. That was one of the examples I gave of how it can be used. Elementary principles. 
So instead of elemental spirits, elementary principles. That's how the New American Standard Bible translates it. Um, and that's also a similar one. Uh, New King James Version translates it as basic principles. Basic principles. And I would say that's the better translation in light of the context, which we're going to look at in greater detail. Because I want you to understand why elemental spirits is not what Paul's talking about. Though it says it in your ESV copy. So when you read it, you'll rightly understand it. We'll see that it is more likely that Paul's not speaking of elemental spirits that are influencing in the world, but rather he is speaking of the elementary principles or rudimentary teachings of the world. Basic teachings. More specifically, as we'll see, he's, he's speaking of the basic elements of world religion. Just the basic elements of world religions. And if we keep on reading, we get the full context of what he's saying in verse 8. That's what's helpful, right? To read this letter, to keep reading and to see what exactly is he talking about so I can rightly understand this. And we get clarification on this unique phrase, elementary principles of the world. I'm going to call it elementary principles of the world because I would say that's right from now on. So ignore that translation in the ESV. Elementary principles of the world. What does he mean by that? Well, we keep on reading. We'll see in verses 9 through 14. Paul speaks of the reality of the Colossians' salvation in Christ. Specifically, the spiritual life and complete forgiveness they have in him. And then, starting in verse 15... This is where we're going to pick it up. Or starting in verse 16. Starting in verse 16, this is where we pick it up. Look at what he says. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, which is the practice of extreme self-denial and self-neglect, because it's thought that that makes you more spiritual. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished in together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And that statement right there, this is true spiritual growth. Holding fast to the head. The head is who? It is Christ, right? Hold fast to him and the body grows with a growth that's from God. This is true spiritual growth. The false teachers were saying that spiritual growth comes through, based on what we already read, ceremonialism, asceticism, and even sensationalism, visions experiences, spiritual experience, heavenly experiences. And then in verse 20, after he says this, so that's context, now he says, if with Christ you died to the, we're going to say elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to what? Demonic spirits, angels, no, to regulations, to regulations. Verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So what is Paul talking about? What, what is he clearly talking about in this whole passage? Ceremony, religious ceremonies, rituals, and regulations. So based upon that, it seems that the elementary principles of the world refer to those things, religious regulations and rituals and ceremonies, all of which are of the world. They're of the world. Meaning that in and of themselves, we're not talking about they're worldly, they're immoral. No, they're just, they're just of the world. They're earthly matters. They're not spiritual matters. And immediately following these verses that we just read, Paul says at the beginning of chapter 3 this, 
So if this is the point, he's attacking ritualism, ceremonialism, this kind of, you know, again, external spirituality, which is he's saying is just of this world. It's not real spiritual growth. Then he says this, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And for the rest of chapter 3, then, Paul gives the Colossians many exhortations concerning true Christian living. For the whole rest of that chapter, after that statement, mind on things above or Christ seated. Things above, not things that are on earth. Not these earthly things. What were those earthly things? He was talking about rituals, regulations, ceremonies, that kind of stuff. For the rest of the chapter, he gives them exhortations about true Christian living true spirituality. And guess what? In that whole chapter, not one of the exhortations he gives has to do with religious ceremonies, rituals, regulations. You see? Meaning the point is that he's referring to elementary principles of religion, these rudimentary things, these external things that that really have no eternal weight, no real spiritual value. And the only other place where Paul uses this exact phrase is in Galatians. So again, when you talk about studying the scriptures and you say, well, what, is it, what does he mean by this? Well, we looked at the context of Colossians. We get an idea of what he's speaking of. But guess what? He uses the exact same phrase in another letter that he wrote. So same author, same phrase. And we'll briefly look at that. Galatians, starting Galatians 3 for context, listen to what he says. And this is, this is kind of similar to what he's dealing with. Different situation with the Galatian church. They were being led to believe that religious works were, well, basically becoming Jews. Gentiles had to become Jews and, and keep the law of Moses in addition to believing in Christ in order to be justified. Whereas Colossians, it was just, no, no, you just need to add these things to believing on Christ in order to be more spiritual. So Galatians is even more urgent because we're talking about a false message concerning your very justification before God. And here's what he says. Now, before faith came... We were held captive under the law, we being Israelites, the Jews. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And then chapter 4, verse 1 He explains, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. So they had all these great and precious promises of God that God was going to do, the salvation he was going to bring. For the time being, they're under the law, under a guardian until the Savior, Christ, would come. So they were children, but they're no different than a slave. Uh, They're owner of everything, but while they're under guardians and managers, they're no different than a slave. He says in verse 2, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved, oh, there it is, to the elementary principles of the world. That's the exact same phrase as Colossians 2.8. But guess what the ESV did here? It translated it this way, instead of elemental spirits. And I would say this way is how it exactly should be translated in Colossians when you're reading 2.8. It's the same phrase. He's speaking of the same thing. And Paul goes on, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So he's speaking of the, the Israelite history and experience, Right? Then he goes on, and then he says, formerly, when you did not know God, well, these Galatians, these Gentiles, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. What's he referring to there? Their paganism, right? Their their idolatry. They were in in paganism. They didn't have the law of God, so they were enslaved to those uh, those that by nature are not gods. They worshiped false gods. And then he says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? 
And here's the thing. They weren't turning back to their paganism, right? He wasn't calling them out for that. Why are you turning back to your paganism? No. What they were turning to at this point, starting to, was the Judaizers' false Christianity, which basically said that in addition to believing on Jesus, you had to keep the law of Moses in order to be justified. But Paul says you're turning back. How does that work? They were pagans. What does he mean turning back if they're kind of embracing some kind of Jewish Christianity? They were turning back in the sense that they were turning back to subjecting themselves to earthly regulations, rituals, and ceremony. The same kind of stuff. Not the exact same, but the same kind of stuff. These elementary things, these earthly things, which we see in verse 10. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. They started going back to that form of religion. So once again, we see that Paul's unique phrase, elementary principles of the world, refers to religious regulations, rituals, and ceremonies. But in addition to that, what do we see in Galatians? Well, we see that he applies this phrase not just to paganism, but he applies it to pre-Christian Old Testament era Judaism as well. You know, the pagans had their own religious rituals and regulations and ceremonies that they practiced in ignorance, absolute ignorance, without the revelation of God. But Paul also said that the Old Testament Israelites, under the law of Moses, had also been enslaved to the elementary principles of the world until the coming of Christ. So did God's law contain regulations, rituals, and ceremonies? Does the law of Moses contain those things? Oh, yeah. Read the book of Leviticus lately? Right? Plenty of them. Plenty of them. Yes. Were they immoral or corrupt or pointless like those of the pagan religions around them? No, they're from God. They were quite the opposite. They were, they were from God. They were good because God had revealed them and commanded them, and he commanded them for a good reason. They served a purpose. They weren't pointless. They were essentially symbols and object lessons, right? The sacrificial system and all of that, the ceremonies, were symbols and object lessons given to instruct and impress upon the Israelites the reality of God's holiness and their separation from him because of their sin. Yet also their need to be holy as he is holy. God gave these regulations to point them ahead then in faith to the spiritual salvation that he would one day bring so that they might enter his everlasting kingdom. So they, they, they had a purpose, and that's what it was doing. In other words, they were, these things were given to the, to, by God to prepare the Israelites for the coming of Christ. All the ceremony, all the rituals, all the regulations, those dietary laws, all those things were really pointing them ahead. They were teaching them things about the holiness of God and their separation and need to be holy, but their inability to do so, and pointing them ahead to look to the salvation God would provide in the Christ. So, guess what? Christ has come, right? Christ came, and he brought the salvation that God had promised. So the Old Testament Israelites who had the law of God, true revelation, the good law of God, they needed to, to lay aside these simpler elementary principles and instructions and embrace the maturity of the faith that is in Christ. So Old Testament Judaism is incomplete. It's completed with the coming of Christ and the ushering in of true salvation and a new covenant with God's people. So there's no more need for symbols. There's no more need for object lessons. There's no more need for the elementary principles because the salvation to which they pointed has been accomplished. The Savior to whom they pointed has come. And as Paul said in Colossians, they are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, he says, belongs to Christ. All that stuff in the law, the regulations, rituals, and all, they were shadows of the good things to come. The substance of those things, the real substance, belongs to Christ, and Christ has come. So to return for the Old Testament Jew, right, who was living as God had called him to, 
because Christ came, to turn back to those ceremonial aspects of the law of God, the law of Israel, that would be to revert then to a, a primitive form of religion. Now, the false teachers in Colossae were, you know, they were pushing a false Christianity that blended Jewish and pagan regulations, rituals, and ceremonies, and they insisted that these practices were the means to greater spiritual maturity, wisdom, empowerment, and blessing. you got to do this stuff, this really religious stuff. You know, hey, the Jews, yeah, they had some things figured out, so you should keep their laws, but we got some other stuff for you to do. That's how you become more spiritual. That's how you experience more spiritual empowerment and blessing and wisdom. But Paul calls, calls out the, these practices as elementary principles of the world. They're basic. They're rudimentary. They are not advanced or mature. And Paul's saying that the sophisticated, philosophy-loving false teachers were advocating nothing more than some primitive religion. They were trying to say, we have enlightenment. We have insight. We are very in touch with God, and we want to show you how to be more spiritual. And he's saying it's the opposite. What they're trying to push to you, what they're trying to sell you on is it's nothing. It's false knowledge. It's empty deceit. It has nothing to do with spiritual truths. And in fact, what they're trying to push, they're actually the unadvanced ones. They're pushing elementary kind of religion, primitive kind of religion. You have the substance. You have Christ. And just to drive this point home, some commentators wrote some helpful observations on this. They said the, the form of teaching which was gaining currency at Colossae was something which belonged to a pre-Christian stage of experience. Therefore, whatever its precise nature might be, to accept it now would be a mark of spiritual retrogression, going backwards in your spiritual walk. Another commentator, commentator says the, the whole statement means elementary principles of the world, it means that the Colossian system, though represented by its proponents as advanced philosophy, was really only rudimentary instruction, the ABCs of the world. That is to say, it was elementary rather than advanced. It was earthly rather than heavenly. One more comments. One put it this way, to accept their teaching would be to descend, to regress from the mature teaching of Scripture to the infantile, Teachings of an immature religion based not on advanced thinking and wisdom, but on silly and childish thoughts. To abandon biblical truth for empty philosophy is like returning to kindergarten after earning a doctorate. You see the idea there? I mean, Paul, in a sense, is kind of, it's a jab at this false teaching. It's mocking it. What these heretics offered was not an advance in spiritual knowledge, but a retreat to spiritual infancy. So the warning in Colossians 2.8 is to watch out so that no one captivates you with philosophy according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Guess what? Philosophy lacks true spiritual wisdom. Human tradition lacks true spiritual authority. And the elementary principles of the world lack true spiritual power. Christ, however, possesses all these things. And Paul says, and again, we'll look at this quickly in verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Sounds familiar, right? Paul said something similar earlier in his letter. It's similar to what he said in chapter 1, verse 19. He said, in, in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And the Greek word in this verse, verse 9, it's translated as deity. It refers to this, the state of being God, the state of being God. God. So in other words, Paul's making the point that the fullness of the essence or being of God is found in Christ. Not just his likeness, but his very essence is found in Christ. Christ indeed is the true and full image of God. And then notice what Paul says next in verse 10. And you, Christians... You have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. You know, the false teachers were likely claiming that the Colossians would experience some spiritual fulfillment by keeping the religious 
works that they were espousing. But like Paul mentioned in Galatians, these things in and of themselves were weak and worthless. They were lacking any spiritual power. And like Paul says later in Colossians, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They're weak. They're powerless. Paul said the false teacher's philosophy was in accordance with human tradition and earthly elementary principles of religion and not in accordance with Christ. And he said that that made it empty deception. So if Christ is not central and supreme to any religious system of teaching, and you can determine this by measuring up against the scriptures, which are his word. That's how you measure up what somebody's trying to teach. If Christ is not central and supreme, well then, that system is spiritually bankrupt. And guess what? You can't be filled by what's empty, right? If it's just hot air, if it's just false knowledge, is that going to fill you? Does it have something of value to offer you? The true Christian has, through faith, been filled by the one in whom all the fullness of God's essence dwells, the Lord Jesus Christ. In him, Paul said, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him is an infinite supply of life and grace and wisdom and power, all found in Christ. And one commentator says, all that human beings can know or experience of God is found in Christ. And so Christians, simply by virtue of being Christians, have access to all this knowledge and all these experiences. We need look nowhere else. So if God has caused you, and you know your heart, God knows your heart. If God has caused you truly to be born again and you, you've received Christ Jesus the Lord by faith, then you are not spiritually incomplete. You are not spiritually lacking in anything. You have all that you need for life and godliness in Christ. Do you remember the previous passage we talked about? We're wrapping up here. Remember the previous passage, verses 6 and 7? How's the Christian life summed up? It's summed up as walking in Christ, remaining rooted in Christ, being built up in Christ. And this is done as we seek to know and understand and submit to and apply his word. Not rituals, regulations, ceremonies. It's through his word that we remain in him and we grow in him. And that is the essence of the Christian life. That is true spiritual living. That is worshipful living. Christianity, which is the only true religion, is characterized not by regulations and rituals and ceremonies. What's it characterized by? Thankfulness and love in response to the grace that God has showered on us in Christ and in response to the love which God demonstrated towards us and poured out into our hearts through Christ. You see, true Christianity is not characterized by these earthly elements, rituals and ceremonies. It's thankfulness and, and love. We worship God not by external religious works, but, as Christ said, in spirit and in truth. So do you, do you desire to live a spiritually empowered life? Yeah? You want to grow in holiness and godliness? Don't look to man's philosophy. Don't look to man's traditions. Don't look to man's religious works. Look to Jesus and to no one else. He's sufficient for you. That is the point here. That is the main point that Paul's making. Christ is sufficient for you. You don't need to look anywhere else. Trust in him with all your heart rather than leaning on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll make your paths straight. Let his word dwell in you richly. Keep his commands. Follow his, his example. All the fullness of God dwells in him, and you are united with him by faith. You are united to all that fullness. You have access to infinite resources. So trust in Christ's sufficiency for all things pertaining to life and godliness. And guess what? Rest in his grace. Rest in his grace. Continue in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this 
morning that you've allowed us to gather together and to open your word, your truth that you have revealed to us, that we not, might not be in darkness, that we might know the true way of salvation that you provided in your Son, our Lord. And Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that, that we can think upon these, these things, that, that we might be reminded that you are absolutely supreme in everything and sufficient for everything. We lack nothing in you. We pray that you would guard us against any kind of teaching, philosophy, tradition, religious teaching, Lord, that would, that would cause us to think that we need to somehow supplement the gift that you've given us by faith, that we need to somehow do things, religious works, to, to grow in godliness, Lord. You've given us your spirit. May we rest in your grace. May we, we be reminded of your absolute sufficiency and thus give glory and honor to you as we live lives that are, that are liberated from all the burdens that those in this world experience because they don't have the answers to the big questions. There is an empty void in their hearts and they are separated from you. We pray that we might be reminded of the access we have to you the grace that we have in you, and we continue walking in you and look nowhere else but to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.